It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah? There'll be ghost stories during during Christmas? Uh-huh. Why would there be ghost stories during Christmas? It's an excellent question, Adam. Um, one, it doesn't really make sense, for the record. There is a tradition of it, Adam. Oh, tell me about the tradition of it. I think it's basically... Is it British? It's British. Of course it's British. Obviously British. Always British. Um, it's It's this odd sort of tradition of, you know, Christmas Eve really dark. It's about to be the longest night of the year. And so what are we going to do? We're going to tell scary ghost stories. Um, and they did this, the British did, for many a year. For many years. Apparently it was even more common at Christmas than it was like at Halloween until like eventually that flipped, right? And then Halloween became oh, yeah. the season of you know horror. And But no, no, no. It was, it was Chris, Christmas Eve it's when you tell your scary stories. And that's like Charles Dickens, right? Like that's a Christmas oh, yeah, Carol. It's a scary Carol. ghost it's, story for Christmas. There it is. And like there's, you know, a whole bunch of fictitious ones that are just, it's like an anthology. You can buy anthologies of these. They're just oh my gosh. Both sides of the Atlantic for a while. Well, rumor has it mm. that that is a tradition that's trying to like make its way back into the world. People are trying to like bring back yes. ghost stories at Christmas. Yes. I've seen, I've seen a lot of um, local places doing like Christmassy ghost walks. Yeah. Which is exciting. Well, Merry Christmas, Christina. Merry Christmas, Adam! This is our Christmas episode. It and is. And we thought we would help bring this tradition back mm-hmm. by having our Christmas episode and having some uh, some, some, some ghost, spooky stuff. Some spooky stuff. And so, we do. And so today we're doing a very different yes. type of episode. Today's episode um, is almost a cornucopia. Mm. An amuse-bouche. An amuse-bouche. Um, today we're going to bring not one, Mm-mm. not two, Mm-mm. not three, but four four stories and if you're someone who's thinking about joining in on our patreon mm. this is the kind of stuff that you're gonna get on our patreon because right. these are what we call mini stories mini stories and if you join our Story-ets. patreon storyettes if, they're if like the rockets but for tiny stories but not that the rockets are tiny no they're actually very tall they're very tall <laughs> but these are um these are little little storyettes, and if you want to to get more storyettes, in addition to our normal stories, you go on to patreon.com slash nymysterymachine, and you can become a patron. And at our second level and above, mm. you get to have, it's sitting in front of me, I have to talk about it, our very brand new New York Mystery Machine stickers. I almost tried to wave it in front of the microphone like but it was no, going to make yeah. a sound. That was... <laughs> That's a sticker, everyone. <laughs> It's so it's so <laughs> thick. Here, you can listen to us peel it off. How's that? Um, and if you if you want to get a free sticker, you go on our Patreon. If you want to purchase one, you can do that too. Yeah. Uh, there'll be a link up on our on our Instagram probably the next day or so. They're just gonna be three dollars, and then we'll uh, we'll ship it your way. We'll yeah. probably open it on the old Etsy probably. It's mm-hmm. the easiest way of doing it because it's just a little sticker before yeah. we do any other things. Right. Um, and uh, you can get your own. There, it's just our logo, the brilliant logo that was uh, created by Nick Kamia, um at Extra Cooler on Instagram. If you want to see his amazing work, and um, we're really excited to to have our sticker finally come in. And so, if you're a patron who signed on for those, um, we've already reached out to you. You're getting your stickers probably in the next week. Yeah. Uh, if you're someone who's been our listener of the month, we're going to reach out to you. Um, one listeners of the month, 
was my partner Sam, so she got hers already. It's already on her computer. <laughs> Cut the line. And she shared it on, on the socials. Uh, but those will go out to you. But um super excited to get into our, our Christmas. And here's the thing about what we learned. Well, our original goal for this Christmas episode was to have as many New York mysteries that happened on Christmas. Mm-hmm. And we learned something. Yeah. Christmas is New York is pretty quiet on Christmas. Yeah, no one wants to do uh, creepy stuff on Christmas. It seems it's actually uh, pretty remarkably hard. So we got some stuff for you, and um, next year there's gonna be a big episode coming your way. But we we wanted to save it because it was gonna take it was gonna take some more some more uh, effort, and I wanted to be able to give it all the attention needs. So next year's Christmas story is gonna be a doozy. But this year we're gonna give you. The, the the gift of storyettes exactly as, which I realize as we've been talking there is a word for that and it's vignette we have vignettes <laughs> <laughs> we have vignettes and so it it's, but it is a it, what I love about today's episode is we do have an array yes um they are different a smorgasbord they I'm go, just gonna come up with like all the eating all the terminology way. that we can they go they 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 are spread out all over New York they are weird they are murdery they are ghostly and uh they are helping us revive this tradition of ghost stories single-handedly you're welcome we're doing this you're a welcome world the new york mystery machine is here to provide and that's what you also pardon my voice which is the most raspy <laughs> thing in the history of things today of all days we decided to start singing on the episode i was like great it's the day that i sound like harry firestein <laughs> Which uh, is an album I would buy. It's <laughs> the most wonderful time of the year. Um, yeah, I am. I just got over a, a sinus infection. So. Yeah. Not COVID, thank God. But um, my throat is fine. But my voice is just like, nah, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're not here yet. It's doing. You know, it's trying to be spooky for the occasion. It's being spooky. It knows. All right. Well, let's let's jump into our holiday because. I spend most of my time editing our podcast. Yes. Christina has one extra story than I do. Yes. Uh, be- two extra stories than two I extra do. Two extra stories. <laughs> Christina, one is like so short, Christina though. has three. I brought one to the party. <laughs> I'm the person who brings one one dish to the party. She's like, well, I brought this, this, and this for everyone else. In case you didn't bring, in case you didn't bring I got for you. <laughs> Worry not. Well, I mean, again, you do all the editing and I do a lot of- have to poke me to get uh, me to do the social media. So, you know, I'm a lot to wrangle. Anywho, um, in any case, I'm really excited. I'm excited, too. Do you want to start? I will. Because um, you have something more than I do. <laughs> and I'll say that we are starting properly on Christmas. Ooh, uh, I love a proper Christmas. As opposed to like Christmas adjacent. Um, we are starting in the center of the New York universe, Manhattan. Ooh, I love it. And this story centers on a gift sent to 35-year-old Harry Cornish, the director of the Knickerbocker Athletic Club mm. in December 1898. So Harry Cornish was born in Boston. He'd been previously married, but by 1898, he was divorced and remarried. Um, and he was the physical director at, at the athletics club in both Boston and Chicago, and then eventually here. And he was known for producing these amazing athletes, so much so that he oversaw the athletic games and the 1893 World's Fair as well. Okay. Um, but he can also be like pretty blunt and impulsive and unyielding, which will... Classic. Yeah, setting set, set up what's going <laughs> to almost happen to Harry right there. Um, so on Christmas Eve, 1898, Harry receives a small t- blue Tiffany pasteboard box with a silver toothpick which 
apparently toothpicks come in silver. Like um, like all silver or is this painted silver? Excellent question. I am not certain. I choose to believe it is a pure silver toothpick. Which would be a useless toothpick. Yeah. You would yeah, like, that'd be pretty bendy. You'd fuck up your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and so you'd fuck up your teeth by taking a piece of silver and jamming it in your mouth. Well, it wasn't just the silver toothpick. There was also a blue bottle of Bromo Seltzer. What's Bromo Seltzer, you ask? It sounds like alcohol seltzer for bros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get your Bromo Seltzer. Basically what it is. It, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's a tonic for headaches and like but all for bros. things. But for bros. Bro. So it came to his, um, I believe it arrived at the Knickerbocker Athletic Club, but there was no card enclosed. So he like saved, for whatever reason, he saved the address portion, the handwritten address portion. And this is important. So he brings it home. Yada, yada, yada. He lives on 61st West 86th Street with his aunt, Catherine J. Adams, who owned the building. And they go about their business. They have Christmas. It's lovely. And then a few days later, December 28th, Catherine awoke with a terrible headache. Oh, no. And Harry sees her miserably trying to do house chores, but like her head's pounding. And he offers the Bromo Seltzer. And she mixes it with a glass of water. And soon after, grabbed her stomach, runs to the bathroom, collapses dead. Oh, damn. Now, Harry and Catherine's daughter, Florence, had both taken a couple of sips from the glass, and they felt, you know, a little bit of stomach pain, but nothing like this. She drank the whole thing, it seems. A doctor was called immediately, and he was like, well, this is weird. This has got to be poison. So he takes the Bromo Seltzer bottle to the coroner's for analysis. And when Catherine is autopsied, traces of cyanide and potassium are found. Now, this unusual death makes the headlines, and the newspapers run with an image of this handwritten address from the package, right? The idea being it had to be the thing that came in the Bromo Seltzer. And the secretary of the Knickerbocker Athletic Club sees this image of this handwritten, you know, address and recognizes the handwriting. And he recognizes the handwriting as belonging to that of Roland B. Molyneux, a snobbish, somewhat vain man of about 30 years who was a former club member. Now, why did he recognize his handwriting? Well, Molyneux had been writing angry letters to the club for some time now, which is how he recognized the handwriting and also his odd spelling habits. For example, I think I wrote this down wrong because his spelling habit makes sense in my brain. 40. How do you spell 40, Adam? F-O-R-T-Y. 40. Right. That is correct. He spells it with a U. Like 4-T. Oh, 4-T. That's incorrect. Which, like, I, I, I know, but, like, I, I get it. I get why you would do that. Well, I get it, but it's incorrect. But it, only a handful of people write it that way, right? The few incorrect ones. Yeah, I mean, the incorrect ones do. And uh, and this is how Molyneux always addressed it, his angry letters. So who is Roland Molyneux? Roland Molyneux is the son of a president of a large dye manufacturer. So he grows up in a wealthy, prominent family. His father was a general uh, in the Union Army during the Civil War. And Molyneux initially follows in his father's footsteps. He studies chemistry, works as the head of a dry color factory in New Jersey. Molyneux and Harry Cornish had not been on the greatest of terms. It seems that Molyneux was a national amateur horizontal bar champion, which means nothing to me, but apparently was at the time (laughs) very much the accomplishment. Like this was like, oh, you're the what in athletics? So this was him. But he was defeated by Harry Cornish in April 1897 in a weightlifting competition. Now, Molyneux got very angry um, and tried to get Knickerbocker board of directors to remove Harry Cornish. And Harry, in turn, wrote letters to other club members slighting Molyneux and saying he was a poor athlete, saying he sold illegal rum and was known to consort with prostitutes, which made Molyneux 
livid. And he said he would leave the club if Harry stayed on as physical director, which in December 1897, the board voted. Harry would stay on. Molyneux resigned his membership. Oh, boy. So this is their history. Now, the detective investigating the case, a detective Carrie, uh, immediately is like, well, this is weird. This Molyneux guy, he's a, he's a chemist and he has like this weird relationship. Probably him. Um, and he, he, he keeps him in mind as the primary uh, you know, person of interest. He also realized that the Bromo Seltzer container was, in fact, not a real bottle of Bromo Seltzer. I mean, obviously, it would poison someone. But like, it was also too small. It's not like it was the typical Bromo Seltzer bottle with stuff added. It was too small. It was the wrong shape. And he tracked down the Newark jewelry store that sold this bottle holder and found that the item had been purchased on December 21st. The saleswoman described a purchaser as a man in his 30s with a full red beard. Well, Molyneux doesn't have a beard, but, you know, you can, you can fudge that. Carrie went on to find a patrolman in Newark who claimed to have seen Molyneux near the store on the 21st. And Detective Carrie persists. So... What other evidence is there, right? So we have Molyneux is angry with Cornish. That's her motive. He was a chemist. A toxicologist found that the real cause of the death of Catherine Adams was the effects of cyanide of mercury, which very specifically is used to blend dry colors in the dye factory where Molyneux worked. So he's got the opportunity as well. And then you have the patrolman who places Molyneux in the neighborhood on the day of the purchase, right? And then the handwriting linking the package and Molyneux's own misspelled letters. Mm. But you can't get a warrant on evidence like that. It's all circumstantial. So he keeps going. Now, it would have probably stayed there, except that Detective Carey eventually learns of an unusual death just prior to Catherine Adams. In that case, a Henry C. Barnett was the victim, and he was connected to Molyneux's wife. So in 1897, Molyneux and Blanche were going out, and Molyneux had introduced Blanche to this Henry Barnett, who was at the time a member of the Knickerbocker. And soon Henry and Blanche become an item. When Molyneux asked Blanche to marry him in October 1898, Blanche refused because she was in love with Henry. So on November 10th, Henry Barnett died suddenly. Mm. The result of some sort of poisoning resulting in a cardiac something, it was a lot of medical language I didn't understand. The point being, he was poisoned. And eight days later, Molyneux approaches Blanche again, and he and Blanche end up married on November 29th. Things happen fast. Real fast. So this is just, a, you know, a What's little- the year on this again? 1898. Yeah, it's happening real fast. Yeah. And so, like, all these two deaths are also just, like, within a month of each other. Uh-huh. Um, and it's worth noting that just prior to Barnett's death, this Henry Barnett had received a box of Kuchno powder, which is a stomach remedy, from an anonymous source. Uh, and when this powder was analyzed by the toxicologist, the powder had been laced with cyanide of mercury. So the same substance. Mm. Now, the press was fascinated. Um, but Detective Carey still needs proof that Molino was the buyer of the Kutno powder. So he goes through the records of the company and finds a handwritten note. Please send me a sample of salts to 1620 Broadway and oblige. Yours, etc. H. Cornish, which is not Molino's name. It's mm. the name of the guy he was trying. we think he's trying to kill, right? So they call in all of these handwriting specialists, and it was determined, again, that this H. Cornish, handwriting-wise, matches that of Molyneux. They even uh, obtain a formal sample of Molyneux's handwriting, dictating words that include the words that end up being on the Knickerbocker address, like 40, and he does all the things. It looks the same. He spells 40 with a U, yada, yada, yada. 
And in fact, eight experts unanimously arrive independently at the same conclusion. Roland, Roland Molyneux had written these letters and addressed the package. So on February 9th, 1899, uh, a three-week coroner's inquest began, and it also served as an opportunity to try to prove that Henry Barnett had also been murdered. On February 27th, the jury recommended Molyneux uh, be brought before a grand jury on a charge of murder. And the grand jury does indict Molyneux. Uh, on November 14th, 1899, the murder trial begins. And the prosecution has eight, nine different handwriting experts come to the stand and demonstrate that it's the same handwriting. The defense doesn't call anybody. They're just relying on the idea that maybe, possibly, possibly, they'll that the prosecution will, in their closing remarks, mention Henry Barnett and try to link it as a murder, even though there's no definitive proof it was a murder, despite oh. the similarity. Oof. So they're banking That's on That's a this. Hail Mary. Yeah. In fact, they just all they say is, we believe that the prosecution has failed to establish its charge and we rest the defense upon the people's case. Sat down. There it is. So in his closing remarks... The prosecutor did, in fact, bring up Barnett. The prosecutor was a man named John Osborne, who was a Southerner. So what I would like, Adam, you guessed it, is I'd like you to read the bolded bit in your best fiery Southerner. <clears throat> okay, here we go. <clears throat> you must remember that this defendant was married on November 29th, 1898. You must remember that Barnett died on November 10th, 1898. You must remember that the defendant testified at the inquest that he had been trying to marry this woman from a time running back to January 1898. The plain cold facts are that this woman had refused him until Barnett was cold in his grave. There have been times in this case when I began to think of poor old Mrs. Adams stricken down, stricken down with an opportunity to make her peace with God, stricken down while she was in the performance of her family duty, leaving alone and unprotected her daughter and son, stricken down in the most cruel and most brutal manner. Sometimes it seems to me in the nightmare that I can almost hear the voice of Mrs. Adams calling me, and then Barnett, Barnett in the vigor of his youth and manhood stricken down in the same manner and will a jury of my countrymen quail before the honest and just verdict i think not thank you adam that is exactly what i was hoping <laughs> would happen here thank you for this that was um it was a little um colonel sanders uh, and a little jason sudeikis on main justice on snl Yes, that, yes, this with. is main justice. This is exactly <laughs> this, this is main justice <laughs> in Maine here, down in the Maine. <laughs> so, February 11th, 1900, the jury finds Roland Molyneux guilty of first degree murder and the death of Catherine Adams. Now, one just fun fact this has already cost the state $200,000 over the course of this trial, in what we are in the year 1900, which makes it one of the most expensive in, its, in the state's history so far. But it still wasn't over, right? He links Barnett to Adams. So the defense gets what it wanted. The, uh, they file an appeal. They say that the judge didn't allow the defense to cross-examine any of the prosecution's handwriting experts. It was not a fair trial. The judge biased the jury in favor of the prosecution, allowing Osborne to link the deaths of Adams with Barnett, even though there's no concrete evidence. Um, and so in 1902, Mullineau gets a new trial. And this time, most of the documents end up being excluded with the exception of expert testimony on the handwriting found on the Bromo Seltzer package. There's no mention of Barnett, 
And as an alibi witness, the defense produces a professor from Columbia who says that Molyneux was with him on December 23rd, 1898, which means he could not have possibly gotten to the post office in Park Row in time to mail this. So November 12th, 1902, the jury deliberates for four minutes, just four minutes, Mm. and pronounces him not guilty. Wow. And that's where we end it because, you know, there's actually some interesting things after that. Like he is committed to an insane asylum. There's a lot that goes on. But that's where this ends. Um, But what would have been the motive to begin with? Well, really angry at his uh, semi-professional rival. Just, is theoretically. Just rivalry. You know? Rivalry is what Plus, he it. probably had a little extra of the cyanide of mercury left over from the last time he <laughs> killed someone. I was like, well, I gotta put it somewhere. <laughs> gotta use what I gotta use. <laughs> um, well, there we go. We start off with a mail there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we'll uh, we'll go right into this next little one. I'm ready. This next little one. Um, so uh, here yeah. we go. Our next tale, dear listener on this Christmas sharing, um, takes us back to a familiar spot from the New York Mystery Machine. Mm. We're heading on back to Montauk. Montauk. Montauk, the famous site of um, the the Montauk Project from earlier episodes. And a lot of timey-wimey, brain-twisting Weird, weird timelines. Multiverse and whatnot. Um, There is a spirit that has been haunting the old lighthouse at Montauk, Ooh. the Montauk Point Lighthouse, for quite the many years. We don't know much about her, but we have a name, okay. have a couple of theories. Mm. We're going to get into it. I'm ready. Um, now, I know what you want. You want to know everything about this lighthouse. Obviously. Of course you do. Well, your Christmas wish is my command. <laughs> it's actually the oldest lighthouse in New York State. It was authorized by the Second Congress under President George Washington Ooh. in 1792. Prior to that, British soldiers during the American Revolution used it, uh, used its elevated location known as Turtle Hill for mm. watchfires to guide their ships, which blockaded Long Island Sound. Oh, wow. So always kind of used as a lighthouse in some way, shape or form. Fascinating. Um, construction began June 7th, 1796 and it was completed November 5th, 1796. So a pretty quick yeah. turnaround, June to November. Wow. Uh, yeah, right. Um, it also still serves as an aid to navigation to this day. You know why it was a quick turnaround? Tell me. Because it took them four years to get started, it seemed, right? <laughs> Didn't you say 1792 was like when authorized? Was yeah. And they took four years to be like, hmm, what kind of lighthouse do we I want? Mean, let's plan this thing. <laughs> we should really put our heads together. We want to start. We want to get it done. The Montauk Point Lighthouse was designated a National Historic Landmark in recognition of the property's national significance in the history of the United States of America on March 5th, 2012 by the Secretary of the Interior. Um, And when Robert Moses ordered the construction on... Robert Moses. Boo. When Robert Moses (laughs) ordered the construction of Montauk Point Parkway in 1931, the lighthouse became easily accessible. Uh, And so ever since then, visitors have been... Flocking their way through to see to see this lighthouse, but among the visitors mm. who come to this site, many have claimed that the Montauk Lighthouse is haunted Ooh. by a maiden a who maiden. goes by the name of Abigail. Abigail. There's no last name, just Abigail. Huh. Which is great, like Madonna. Yeah, I love Good it. Good for her. 
Um, volunteers, tour guides, guests all claim to have heard her voice echoing in the hallways, and their reports get more articulate from from there. Um, some have witnessed uh, um, incredible paranormal visions. Mm-hmm. Um, some have heard things. Some have felt touch. Ooh. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a good old fashioned haunting. Yeah. Um, one believer of mm. these paranormal stories is Henry Osmers, who's the Montauk Lighthouse historian. Oh, which is pretty oh. cool. First and foremost, that like a historian yes. of a place is like telling ghost stories. Yes. To the peoples. I love that. Um, My kind of historian. Osmer says there are two very popular stories attributed to Abigail, both taking place on or around Christmas. Because it's a Christmas podcast, folks. (laughs) Um, The first story is a bit light on substance, but has been a constant theory in terms of who Abigail was. Now, the waters around Long Island, the Long Island Sound, have been known to be very rough every now and then. Mm. Uh, and because of this, uh, especially during the 19th century, when the boats weren't like the boats of today. But that was the age of Iron Man and uh, wooden wooden ships, right? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wooden, wooden ships. And that, yeah. Uh, the waters were kind of just like graveyards for, right. <laughs> for ships and for sailors. And countless victims would fall to their death yeah. through the tides and the storms and all that whatnot. Every so often you get an article where like a shipwreck does wash up on Montauk's shores. Yeah, like, oh, look, a boat. I wonder why there's a boat here. Oh, because this is really this is... a crappy place to be sailing in the 19th century. With our boats that cannot handle the icy terrains of the winters. Yes. Um, so the, the first Abigail theory takes place uh, with her as a passenger on one of those ships. Oh. Um, it says that a ship was lost off of Montauk Point on December 25th, mm. Christmas in 1811. Um, the severe weather and the icy winds caused the ship to capsize. Mm. Um, now, although the icy weather took the ship down, Abigail, fucking superhero, managed to survive. Oh. Uh, the initial wreck, at least. Oh. <laughs> um, they, the uh, stories say that Abigail was able to make her way from the water, from the icy waters, to the beach, um, just below the lighthouse. Hmm. She was spotted by the lighthouse keeper, mm-hmm. who immediately caught sight of her, ran down, picked her up, brought her up the cliff into the house. However, it was there oh. that Abigail would pass away because, oh. you know, like thermal shock. Yeah, and thinking about like just being battered against the rocky shores of my, like, it's yeah, a rocky I, place. Yeah, I mean, it's a miracle that she survived to begin with. Yeah. Um, but survive she does. And um, she makes her way, and then of course she passes away at the feet of this in- of this lighthouse keeper. Oh, poor Abigail. Um, that's the first story. Okay, it's kind of simple. Yeah, they say that very to, dramatic, very romantic, very very romantic. She yes. tied upon the cliffs. And <laughs> the lighthouse keeper brought her up, being like, "Abigail, you must survive." And in a different timeline, she would have survived. They would have fell yes. in love. Yes, they would have gotten married, and then they would have had a wonderful Hallmark Christmas movie. And then she would have killed him because it's a- Well, that's lifetime, Adam. That's a lifetime. And then she snapped. (laughs) Um, So that's the first story. Now, the second story is a bit juicier. Henry Osmers, um, again, the historian of of the Lighthouse, says, quote, this story is mixed with facts, which makes it a little bit more interesting. Osmer's actually tells the story when he gives tours of the lighthouse, which is pretty dope, right? Like, he always, like, prefaces, like, you know, it's a story. This is what we've, the traditions that we've heard, yeah. the rumors we have heard, 
Um, but you know, he, he, but he tells them, which is honestly, when you go to a lot of places that are historical, they don't really spend any time about the ghosts and, yeah. and, and creepy things. And sometimes they try to like keep them out of the storytelling, right. but he's like, nah, we're just going to talk about it. You know? So, um, in 1860, over the span of two winter months, 12 men embarked on a $12,000 renovation of the lighthouse. Mm. The goal was to add 30 feet of height to the lighthouse itself and also add a larger light at the top, mm. making it an even better lighthouse than it right. <laughs> um, They would also add the house that holds the museum today. Oh. So this is all fact. Cool. This happened. Right. This isn't rumor. This isn't hearsay. Right. These 12 men- Did this thing. Did this thing. Which is why the story is juicier. Um, of the 12 men who were renovating the lighthouse, one had a daughter, and guess what her name was? Was it Abigail? It was Abigail. There was also, as one of the 12 men, mm. a strapping young man. Oh. We never catch his name, oh. but he was a strapping young man who caught the eye of our dearest Abigail, mm. which is like, don't bring your daughter to work. This is like <laughs> Armageddon all over again. <laughs> If she didn't go to the job, Ben Affleck would have died on that asteroid, <laughs> not, not um, Bruce Willis. We got everything in this podcast, folks. <laughs> and I don't want to miss a thing. Is that what that's from? Yeah, it's the soundtrack to Armageddon. Oh, shit. Because Stephen Tyler's daughter, Liv Tyler, right. was in it. Huh. You get it all, folks. So Osmer says, quote, supposedly that young man and Abigail took a liking to each other. The father, however, didn't like him. No mm. surprise. Um, it was that nobody is good enough for my daughter mentality. Yeah. Um, that old story, which honestly sounds a lot like the plot to Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> really? Armageddon was based off this? Apparently, one night, Abigail was standing at the top of the tower with her father and the young man when a heated argument broke out between the two men. Osmer says that, quote, Abigail was so disturbed by this fight, she ran down the bluffs to the beach. After a while, she collected herself and she slowly headed back to the lighthouse. However, when she got to the lighthouse, she found her father there staying at the entrance, but he was alone. Mm. The young love of hers was nowhere to be seen. And the father said, quote, don't worry, you'll never see him again. Did he murder the suitor? Now, it's important to note here that um, sometimes kids would come to the lighthouse. And so Osmers says that um, when that happens, he makes the story a bit PG. Mm. So Osmers said in an interview that, quote, if audience, if the audience are small children, I tell them that the father told the young man to go away and never come back. Right. That's not what happened. Oh. What actually happened to the young man? Well, uh, the father killed the young man at the top of the lighthouse, but that's not good enough. That's not where the story ends. Okay. He then shoved his body into the brick sleeve of the lighthouse Ooh. between the inner and outer walls. Oh. The story says that the body was then permanently wedged in the wall to this very day. This is some cask of, uh, what is it? The, what's the Poe one? Cask of Amontillado? Sure. I'm saying it wrong. Uh, maybe it's the, that's not that one. It's the knocking one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyways, so apparently Abigail would cry herself to death. She dies of a broken heart. Um, and after she dies, her spirit comes back to the lighthouse looking for his lost soul, knowing that his aura is around this place where he died. Mm. 
Mm. His bones literally within the building. Now, there's a way of finding out this is true or not. Yeah, you go. You could just, like, they can excavate it. Yeah. They're not going to. They also don't know where it is, and it's just in the new section of the... It's in the lighthouse somewhere. There's, like, ground-penetrating radar. There's stuff they can do. All right, well, if you guys have it, you know, you want to do that. Um, Now, of course, um, weird shit happens at the lighthouse. Hmm. Now, I would have thought that the weird shit happening would be this dead boyfriend. Right, that right, not Abigail. But rumor is it's all Abigail. She's the queen of this this okay. haunting site. Osmer says that, quote, I'd hear talk about Abigail and people always said weird things happen around here. But he himself has had so many paranormal experiences at the lighthouse. Hmm. In 2006, he was climbing the lighthouse stairs before they opened for tours. He heard the sound of a motor start to run upstairs. He said it sounded like a vacuum. Hmm. He says, quote, I figured it was a maintenance man doing some work before we opened up to the public, end quote. However, when he strolled up the top of the stairs, there was no one to be seen. He said it sounded exactly like our vacuum. However, you know, the maintenance man said that he wasn't there. He wasn't around the whole day. Crazy. He wasn't there. No one had been in that building since the day before. But he was so sure it sounded like his vacuum. But it wasn't. But it wasn't. He even went to a point to walk over, find the vacuum, and touch it to see if it was hot or something. And it wasn't. Wow. Another incident took place in 2009 in the attic's archival room. Mm. The attic runs the length of the Lighthouse Museum with windows at both ends. At the far end, right below a window, sat archive boxes unopened by um, Mr. Osmers. He said, quote, this is when I was new to archiving. Mm. I didn't know what was in the boxes. I bent down to take the lid off to look, and suddenly I felt a pull in the back of my jacket. Oh. He assumed he had imagined it or been caught by a nail or, mm-hmm. or something. But the roof was too far away, so it could have been the ceiling pulling on him. Right. Um, and he looked, and there was nothing nearby to actually touch him. Um, so he went down for a second time, mm-hmm. and then it happens again. Oh. But this time, it's more forceful. He said, quote, that freaked me out a little bit. I was all alone up there, and I said out loud, if that's you, Abigail... You're kind of interfering with my job. <laughs> he waited a minute, a minute that to him said he felt like an eternity. Yeah. Then he bent down and nothing happened. She got the point. Oh. She's like, all right. Oh, Abigail. I won't fuck your shit up then. Oh, Abigail. Um, he's been working in an attic for years, but says nothing has happened as similar to that ever mm-hmm. since. It was the most he's ever felt something actually touch him. Mm. Um, in 2012, another incident occurs in the far back room where an exhibit about the lighthouse keeper Jacob Hand is located. Hmm. Uh, Osmer says he was giving a tour to about twelve to about a dozen ten year old students. He said, "I was standing in the doorway, taking, I was standing in the doorway talking to a chaperone, and all of a sudden we heard a scream. We both snapped our heads. A little boy was pointing at the wall, so we all looked at the wall." And a picture was moving back and forth all by itself. Inside the picture frame was an old newspaper clipping. The room does have windows on both sides, but they were shut tight. Mm. The little boy had asked if he'd ever seen that before. And Osmer was like, like, no, I've never (laughs) seen that while this picture is shut. And they all thought it was very cool. 
<laughs> yeah, the last one you're like, because well, there's 10-year-old kids. Right. 10-year-old me would have been freaked the fuck out. 10-year-old <laughs> right. me would not have thought that was cool. Now, others who have worked there have claimed similar eerie events. Uh, Marge uh, Winsky, the former longtime caretaker at the lighthouse, had mm. spent every, nearly every single night living in its second-floor apartment since April 1987. Oh. And this one December week... <gasps> because it's Christmas. Uh, <laughs> she said the cellar and the attic were particularly creepy. She said, quote, one of our museum directors felt a cold breeze brush past him in the attic, mm. and he ran downstairs. Miss Winsky's Newfoundland dog, Kate, would sometimes stare blankly without any apparent reason. The dog would just stop, stare at the door, and just look at the door. Sometimes dogs just, you know, sense those things. Yeah, and sometimes cats, too. You know, sure. it's always upsetting when, like, my cats just start staring into space. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. What do you see? What do you see? <laughs> what do you see? Um, one weekend, Greg Donahue of the Montauk Historical Society was in the process of explaining the legend of Abigail at the peak of the lighthouse when the watchtower door suddenly flung open. Oh, Made a grand entrance. Grand entrance. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yes. Uh, other staff inside report furniture being moved around in the dead of the night, pictures swinging on the walls, unexplained noises. And um, yeah. Wow. The museum, the workers don't try to sway away from the paranormal. Obviously, they talk about it in their tours and their lectures. And while there's no stone cold evidence of Abigail, you can't dismiss the many accounts of her presence. I love it. Uh, there's even a watercolor painted by Terry Flanagan oh. that hangs in the museum. It gives a glimpse into the artist's interpretation of the version of Abigail that was a victim of the shipwreck. Oh. In the painting, we see Abigail hovering over the stairs of the lighthouse, and through the window, you can see the ship uh, that was wrecked. Love it. And this is what that, uh, if you want to take a look at it, I'll well, post I'd this on the, on the socials. But that's Aww. The, that's lovely. And yeah, I'll post on social. And so that's the legend of Abigail. of Abigail. Which which do you think is more likely to be Abigail? Which version? Um, that second one just has so much more yeah. evidence. Yeah. Um, but that second one, I think that I don't know why it's Abigail's ghost and not the other dude's ghost. Yeah. Um, that first one feels very like classic old timey shipwreck, yeah. woman in white type. Even this painting that they painted is a woman in white. Yeah. Um, so either. Either one. I mean, well, like either this, one, yeah. The second one also gives us a nice little true crime situation when the father's like, I took care of him. <laughs> You'll right. never see him again. Gosh, what an ominous thing to come back to. Thanks, My, Dad. Thanks, Dad. I gotta kill every guy. <laughs> I, I don't wanna close my eyes. <laughs> and Armageddon, he tries to shoot him with a gun. So, completely based off the tale of Abigail. <laughs> Um, you got some more stories for us. I do. So let's take a quick break, and we, when we get back, we'll uh, we'll we'll dive into more of our uh, Christmas Cornucopia episode. We'll be right back. So you listen to our podcast, which means you must love mysteries. But how would you like to solve your very own mystery? Hunt a Killer is an immersive murder mystery game told over the course of six episode boxes. Each box is filled with different clues and physical items such as autopsy reports, witness statements, and more. You'll use these clues to solve an ongoing murder mystery. Work solo or as a team of sleuths to finally crack the case and reveal the murderer. So do you think you have what it takes to hunt a killer? If so, head to www.huntakiller.com and use the code 
NY Mystery Machine for 20% off the first box. That's www.huntakiller.com and the code is NY Mystery Machine. Sign up now and begin the hunt. Bow, bow, bow. We're back. Welcome back to New York Mystery Machine. Tammy Hall for Ghost. We didn't say at the beginning. We did not. We were too busy we're singing. Too busy singing. But welcome back. And um, today we're we're rocking these these minisodes, which is mini episodes. Mm. But we're doing we're doing four of those minisodes. Yes, we are. So uh, Christina has two more for the for the fam. That's true. So let's uh, let's get on into it. Where are we? What's happening? Well, I brought us back to uh, New York City. We love New York. We love New York. We're back in New York City, um, and we're in the year 1990. Ooh. Yeah. Modern. Modern. We're going to be talking about a series of art heists in the year 1990. Now, it might seem kind of counterintuitive, but stealing art is sort of a puzzling enterprise. Why do people steal art? What are some reasons you can think of, Adam? For money. For money. Okay, but here's the problem with that. You can't resell it. You can't resell it. All right, so why else do people steal art? I don't know if, like, notoriety for, like, you know, your own personal collection. and Maybe that's enough. Right, but, like, yeah, but then who can you show it to? I guess that's enough if it's, you know, but but still. It's, but you it's, want to show it to somebody. But you want to show it to someone, right? Or you have to hide. You can't even live with it in your living room, right? You have to hide it in your basement because yeah. if people come over and they see it, they'll be like, oh, oh Hide the Van Gogh. Hide the Van Gogh. Van Gogh goes here. Um, so this is the sort of conundrum that uh, investigators who work with art heists sort of puzzle about. Like, what is, to what end? Um so this art heist, well, one, I should say that if you know of an art heist in the U- if you know of an art heist in the U.S. in the 1990s, you probably know the Isabella Gardner Museum heist. And that's with good reason. One, there's a fabulous documentary on Oh, it. yeah, I watched that one. Isn't it good? Good documentary. This is a robbery. It's so good. Um, and the other reason is because the Gardner Museum has a very dramatic way of keeping it at the fore of people's minds. They keep the empty frames on view, empty, in the galleries where the works of art should be. Which I love. I love that. Look what you did. Yeah. <laughs> but that same year, there was a series of, uh, but that same year, there was a series of thefts in New York City of incredibly famous works of art all around, you guessed it, Christmas. So, I'll say too, there's very little reporting done of it. There was like a 1991 article in The Observer. There's a report by the International Foundation for Art Research. And more recently, there was an artsy story in a Columbia podcast. But that's like it. So we start our tale on December 17th, 1990, inside the gallery of Peter Bonnier. At bon- Bonnier. I should have looked up how to pronounce this, but I didn't. So we're going to go with what I think it is. Aloy. Inside, among other surely priceless works, was a William de Kooning work. It was a gouache. It was untitled, dated 1962. And at the time, it was estimated to be about worth about $750,000. And on December 17th, someone goes in and grabs this painting. And it's worth noting the painting wasn't on display per se in the gallery at the time. It was in Peter Bonnier's office, right? So it's sort of, it's an interesting thing. Keep that in mind. On the 19th, sometime between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m., we have two more paintings stolen. These were a David Sal, Salé. Again, probably should have looked this up, but you know what? What's done is done. What's done is done. Uh, His painting, Sales Girls, and Lee Krasner's painting, The Eye is the First Circle, also go missing. Uh, Lee Krasner, fun fact, was once married to Jackson Pollock. There it is. Um, And her painting is massive. It was cut out of its 18-foot frame. The thing is 
big. Now, the paintings were owned by the Robert Miller Gallery, but they were on view in the gallery director's home, which apparently sometimes doubled as like a showroom, I guess, for VIP guests or whatever. So these two paintings together worth 1.5 million. It's worth noting too that the door to this East 20th Street seventh floor apartment was found open with no signs of forced entry. December 21st, Chaim Soutine's L'Apprenti was en route to Beadleston Gallery on East 91st Street. It had been at the Framers and now it's going to the gallery. The driver stops on the Upper East Side at the Aquavella Gallery on East 79th near Madison to drop off something else. And while he does this, both car and cargo stolen. Now this painting was worth $2 million. And it's worth noting um, that per this article that was written shortly after, quote, few people knew about the delivery of the painting, leading an insurance investigator to suspect someone was hired specifically to steal the soutine. Um, the same article also quotes Harold Smith, the president of the investigating agency, who says, it's strange. It's strange that they would, went after that painting. It adds to the puzzles I'm starting to see all over the world. Good paintings are being stolen and they seem to be put in a deep freeze somewhere. At some point, they'll start being laundered and find their way into countries that have a low statute of limitations. So we have these paintings gone. On December 26th, the van is found in Harlem, sans painting. Now, if you're keeping track, this has been about $4.3 million worth of stolen Jeez. art, which when you adjust that for inflation is about $8.3 million today. Now, Two of these paintings were eventually recovered, the sales girls and the eye is the first circle, so the paintings from that middle robbery. Per an anonymous tip, the investigator found them wrapped in packing paper in the lobby of an apartment near Radio City on West 49th Street. And actually just recently, or semi-recently, Lee Krasner, the eye is the first circle, was sold at Sotheby's for $11.6 But the thefts remain unsolved, the rest of the paintings remain missing, and it is unclear as to whether even the crimes are connected. Hmm. Now, I personally think that they have to be connected because that's a kind of a weird... There's a lot of similarities between these, right? You, they're, well, one, they're all fancy, famous art. But they're also all works of art that are in semi... Um, difficult to or like private places right one's in like the office, office yeah. one's at the director's showroom of his home it's not in the actual gallery and one is being transported in this van and no one how many people really know that is being transported in that van at that time mm. so it seems i agree with that early investigator who's like this is an inside job of some kind but i think it's like some sort of inside job on a larger scale um but that's just me being a conspiracy theorist but that's that's the art heists of 1990, still unsolved. That, well, you talk about mini episodes. That, that was, was a mini one. That was a mini, mini episode. Told you it was going to be mini. Real mini. It's so interesting, though, the idea of like who could have done these things and why. Again, I think the idea of why do they do it? Why do you do it on Christmas? Right. It's all around Christmas. I mean, it makes a hell of a Christmas gift if you can give someone a leak. Crazy, Krasner. crazy stocking stuffer. <laughs> just roll it up. Just roll it up. 18 foot painting, get in there. Um, but it is crazy that they're still not found to this day. Those are the yeah. ones from Boston as well, right? They're, right. They're still just not found. No one knows what these yeah. paintings are. Yeah. Because um, what can you do with a painting? Like you can't resell it. You can't. 
unless they're just in someone's like den, like they're downstairs, like unless they're doing other like illegal shit down there. So like right. it's already you can't go down there if you're right. a law abiding citizen to be right. With. There's a network of shady characters that are allowed into your you know your your the home, your den. Wow. Um, well, there you have it. Yeah. So far. So far, we've we've traveled to the lands of murders, yep. ghosts upon the sea, yep. art heist. Also, Chris- maybe a murder at the lighthouse and a murder TBD. at the lighthouse. TBD and uh, Christina, bring us home with our last little gift for the, for the for the kids today. This is also a mini one. This is a very mini one. Very, but I love the I love the title of it. Yeah, ready for this, guys? Here it goes. We're gonna talk about the eggnog riot. Eggnog riot, <laughs> riot. Pour all- another <laughs> bottle of eggnog. <laughs> It's also sometimes called the Grog Mutiny. No, 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 no. Oh, I was waiting for you to do a, a wonderful riff on Grog Mutiny as a song. No, I got nothing, nothing, nothing better than Eggnog nah, Riot. Riot, right. Eggnog Riot is really good. Um, and this, I'm gonna go back to Eggnog Riot. Let that be it. Yeah, it I agree. Um, well, this very festive uprising occurred on December 24th and December 25th, 1826, at a site of yet another of our uh, previous episodes, locales, West Point, New York. So here's what happened. It seems that at the time, well, West Point doesn't allow alcohol on its premises, really, except for a couple times a year. At the time, it allowed alcohol for the 4th of July, because America, uh, and it allowed it for Christmas. But the cadets were so drunkenly rowdy on July 4th, 1826, that Colonel Sylvanus Thayer made sure that all alcohol was banned, even at Christmas. Now, fun fact, just for those who've been paying attention, um, this is the same Thayer that the Thayer Hotel was named after. And you'll remember oh. the Thayer Hotel from our Richard Colvin Cox episode. And if you don't recognize it, go back and listen. Go back to Richard Colvin Cox, folks. So, on this occasion, some feisty little cadets lay claim to some alcohol. It seems that at least three cadets smuggled whiskey from across the Hudson River onto campus. There's also the possibility that some smuggled it onto campus from a local uh, tavern. Thayer isn't a fool. It's not the first time they've smuggled alcohol on, but, you know, he's like, all right. I'll I'll, I'll just get my usual guys to, like, keep an eye on things. Let let the nog flow. Right. So, about 4 a.m., Uh, The two people assigned to monitor North Barracks, a Captain Ethan Allen Hitchcock and... Of of the famous Ethan Allens? And of the famous Hitchcocks? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did he sell a couch? (laughs) That's Ethan Allen, right? I don't even know, but I I like it. Um, Ethan Allen Hitchcock and Lieutenant William A. Thornton uh, were awoken by drunken revelry. And they go investigating. So... Hitchcock finds a party of about six cadets drunk off their faces. Is that an expression? Regardless, he orders them back to their rooms. Get back to your room, drunkies. And as he does that, he's like, oh, fuck, I can hear from next door, too. So he goes next door. And he goes in, and I find this hilarious. There were three cadets. Two were trying to hide under a blanket. Oh, God, they're that drunk. And one takes a hat and uses it like a mask so... Puts it over his face so they didn't. Oh, they're that kind of drunk. Cock can't tell his identity. That drunk that's like, oh man, this is going to work. This, this is totally going to work. work. And so Hitchcock's getting very angry. Um, he really wants the guy with the, the, the hat mask to take it off. He wants to know his identity. In the course of this, they start, you know, saying nasty things at each other. 
until finally Hitchcock leaves and a nearby cadet shouts, get your dirks and bayonets and pistols if you have them. Before this night is over, Hitchcock will be dead. Oh, God. Now, Hitchcock goes on his way to what he thinks is yet another party. Um, He can hear commotion. And he starts going down, down the hallway, and he runs into Jefferson Davis on his way. Now, Jefferson Davis. Um, Like the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis? That Jefferson Davis. Like, oh, hey, Jefferson Davis. Hey, Jefferson Davis. Um, He's like in the hallway with him. And apparently he bursts into the room alongside Hitchcock. They're like walking together and he announces put away the grog boys captain hitchcock's coming so he's that kind of drunk where he doesn't even realize hitchcock is standing literally oh next to him oh my gosh so hitchcock orders davis back to his room oh god and davis complies but the other cadets cadets do not um now we've been talking about hitchcock but thornton is also off breaking up gatherings and he was uh physically hurt in the process he was threatened with a sword and he was struck with a piece of wood um, a cadet even tried to shoot at Hitchcock, but another cadet prevented him, and so the bullet ended up in a door jam instead. So this is going on for quite some time, and it's getting worse. It's the wee hours of, you know, December 25th morn, and finally Hitchcock calls for the commandant of cadets. What he says is something like, get the calm. What the the cadets hear in their mind is Hitchcock calling for the regular artillery men, Um who had the the slang term for them sounded somewhat similar um and the regular artillery men stationed at west point were hated by the cadets why i don't know some sort of weird cadet i don't know rival (laughs) military things um but as a result the cadets freak out and start taking up arms thinking they're going to defend their barracks against the artillery men what an eggnog riot (laughs) that's about to ensue Eventually, the commandant of, of cadets arrives, and he manages to get the slowly sobering up mob to go to bed. Now, there were at least 260 cadets involved in this. 90, because of their behavior, could have, maybe should have, been indicted for the events. But that would have made West Point look real bad. And it was at a time where Thayer was actively trying to make it more like, you know, a legit academic military. Because what year is this again? 1826. 1826, yeah. It's early days, and it's been pretty, like, chaotic up until this point. So he really wants to set a tone for, like, this is what West Point's going to be. So instead, he chooses to expel just the 19 most aggressive from the evening. Among those who were left unscathed were Jefferson Davis and future Confederacy General Robert E. Lee. So if he had only... They would not have selected mm-hmm. them. There's a good chance the Civil War would not have Or at least not with them at the head. <laughs> a different type of Civil Very War. Very different. There's happened. another timeline where. Where the Civil War happened because there was no chance the South weren't going to like want their slaves. Yes. But it wouldn't have been head by Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. Exactly. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. And it's kind of funny too because apparently, like, this was upsetting enough to. to West Point higher ups that um, in eight, in the 1840s they were doing some renovations and they were building new barracks and the barracks in this this renovation the hallways were created in such a way that the cadets had to actually physically leave the building in order to get to another floor i.e. crowd control they no longer wanted the cadets to be able to gather in rooms and corridors in large numbers oh my gosh and that's, that's the that. eggnog riot and that's the eggnog riot Riot. I love it. I love it so much. Well, do you know what I think we, we, we did today? What do we do? Uh, I believe that we um, 
we 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 had some scary ghost stories mm-hmm. and some tales of the glories of Christmas as long long ago. That's true. One might say. I agree with that. I agree with that. We did it, Adam. We did we it. We saved a Christmas tradition. We did. Coming back into the world, tell your spooky, true crime, scary, murdery, art heisty stories every Christmas. Yes. If you like what you hear, you know what you do. You head on over to the iTunes. You give us a five star review, um, and uh, five stars, and tell us what you like. We got we got some new reviews came in this week from people we had no idea who they are in life, which is I great. Love. We love when we have strangers tell us about the, about the show. Make sure you follow us on the socials at NY Mystery Machine on Facebook and Instagram, and at NY Mysteries on the Twitter. And um, we're off next week. We're off. For this the- is our last. Last episode of 2021. And this this show has been such a, a present for me this year. Yeah, and it's so been thank wonderful. you, Christina, for coming on this journey. Thank you, Adam, for, for letting me tag along. Looking forward to our our, our, our 2022 episodes. Yes. A lot of fun surprises coming up, some collabs coming up, some guests coming up, and of course, some crazy New York mysteries because this is New York Mystery Machine. It's Tammany Hall. But for festive ghosts. <laughs> uh, happiest of holidays for all the holidays you celebrate. Merry Christmas and all that jazz. Happy happiest New of New Year's. And we'll see you in 2022.